Janelle, come and preach. Preach, preach, preach. Let's give it up for our dear friend. Yeah, yeah. Let's reach out our hands to our dear friend. Jesus, we thank you that you have called human beings to speak on your behalf. What a profound and humbling reality. And we know, Lord, I know how Jen loves to hear your heart and deliver your heart with humility, with grace, with power, and with conviction. Today, we just bless you, Jen. We see the grace of God on your life, and we see that He has called you with fire in your bones to stand on behalf of King Jesus. And so we bless you today. We bless your mouth. We bless your lips. We bless your mind. We bless your heart. And we preach together with you this morning. We open wide our hearts to you, King Jesus. And we say, speak to us. Shape us. In Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Incredible joy to be with you all. Just before I jump into what I, I feel like I'm Before I jump in, I just want to honor Jan for the incredible gift that you are to this house. Last week, Jan released the word to us. And Jan, your message was powerful and poignant. And you are living it. And we just want to honor you. If you weren't here, yeah, please do honor her. Please be honored. If you weren't here last week, I'd just love to encourage you to, to have a listen. Because the word that Jan had, she felt was not just for her, but also for Freedom House. And um, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, no spoiler alerts, but Jan felt on New Year's Eve that God gave her a picture of her coming up out of a desert. And she felt it wasn't only for her, but for Freedom House. And where we find ourselves at the moment is really a lot of us have come up out of a desert. But we are not just coming up out of, we are walking into something. And how we position ourselves in this moment, at the entry point to what God has for us, is critical. It's critical. And, yeah, I just, I, my ears pricked up last week because I've had a word sitting on my heart for some time now. And the word was birthed out of a moment where I myself was in a desert, a desert of my own, riddled with weakness and pain and disappointment uh, really just coming face to face with my brokenness, God exposing some faulty foundations of orphanness. It wasn't pretty, but that's God. We're in process. It's not always pretty. And while I was in that moment, I felt God speak to me very clearly about both Jesus and Joshua and how they came out of their deserts. And what struck me about it was both Jesus and Joshua came out of their deserts in weakness. I don't know if, if you're aware of that, but for Jesus, he went, he was led into the desert by the Spirit and chose physical weakness before encountering the enemy and walking into the inauguration of the kingdom. So that was his access point to what God had called him to. For Joshua, he had been called to lead the Israelites into the promised land. But Joshua, in obedience to God, chose to circumcise his men, 
So he chose military weakness at the very access point to his promised land. I hadn't seen that before. And while I was in my little desert, I was crying out because I thought, I don't think I'll ever come out. I don't think I'll ever gather the strength to get out of this. And as I came face to face with this reality, I realized I'm not coming out in my power. I'm not. I'm coming out in his. And this is a side note, but as we were worshiping and I was thinking about that moment for me in the desert, I was riddled with weakness. But disappointment was actually making me incredibly weak. I was disappointed with God, and I was disappointed with people. And I just want to tell you, that is illegitimate, because God does not disappoint. And I realized that I wasn't disappointed with God. I was disappointed with my inability to control God. I was disappointed with my inability to get him to do what I wanted him to do. My agenda, my life him not conforming to my ways. And that was a hard deliverance. But unless we can eliminate disappointment with God from our hearts, we're going to come unstuck and we're never going to walk into the fullness of what he has for us. Our God is a loving, kind father. And when we're on about what he's on about, we will never be disappointed. I also want to say, if you are disappointed with people, Join the club. Everybody's disappointed with everybody. I have probably disappointed you. You probably disappointed me. This is family. We disappoint each other all the time, and we are human. We are broken. Let's not, let's not hope for more. You know, if, we ex- if we expect that we're in family and we're doing life together, we cannot be putting each other on pedestals. Jesus is the only one worthy of a pedestal. Let's keep him on the pedestal and let's stop hoping for perfection from one another. And I want to ask, if you're disappointed with someone, please just extend the grace that God has extended to you. Because we disappoint him every single moment of every single day of our lives. And he still poured everything out for us. He has loved us without reserve and we get the beautiful privilege of extending that same act of kindness to one another. So let's not sit on the opposite side of church from people forever. Come on, people. Come on, let's move past this. Let's love each other into wholeness. So just in studying, I'm sorry that I'm on about two stories this morning. It could make it complicated, but I'm trusting that it will be as clear as possible. And... But when I was studying these stories and I thought about us in this moment, I saw Joshua and Jesus, I saw in the stories of Joshua and Jesus, three very, very clear things. First, I saw obedience. Secondly, dependency. And thirdly, devotion. And I'm going to expound on those three points. But Jan mentioned in her preach that we absolutely cannot carry out the Great Commission if we are not empowered by him. We have to carry his power and his divine enabling if we are going to walk in that which he's called us to. And so, obviously, we have to be encountering Jesus. But I want to say that if we are encountering Jesus, but we are not living lives 
in obedience, dependency, and devotion to Him. It's like trying to set fire to wet wood. You might see an initial ignition, but that wet wood will never burn hot enough or long enough to sustain that fire. If our lives are not submitted, surrendered, and devoted to Him, we will never carry the glory of God as He's designed us to. And in that case, we will never walk into the fullness that He has for us. And so I just want to say, when I talk and get passionate, my eyes become extremely big. And if my eyes become big, please don't be scared. I pray for you all every day, and I love you all. And this is, it would only be passion. Um, I can't have an eye transplant. I would if I could, but I cannot. So, pardon? Knick-knack toes. Anyway, so... Right, first point is actually obedience. And so this is the denial of self-determination. I don't know about you. I'm sure there are quite a few A-types in the room, very determined. But when we're yoked to Jesus, we don't need to be A-types. We don't need to make anything happen. He does it. We do it with him. We don't need to be forging away. We just need to be getting out of the way. Progress cannot be measured purely by the amount of ground taken. It cannot. Progress has to be measured by the amount of room we are giving him to move in our lives. Right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. I'm, I'm going to speed read so that we're not stuck here for too long. But we are reading about the temptation of Jesus firstly. So, Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and attended him. Oh, <laughs> oh beautiful. So really, we see here Satan's sole purpose in tempting Jesus was to get Jesus to compromise his mission by using his own power for his own well-being instead of for God's purposes. Compromise. Compromise. Compromise is the one thing that the enemy loves to see happen in our lives. Now quickly turn with me to Joshua. Sorry, this is the nature of telling two stories at once. Joshua chapter 5. As soon as the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. There were, I'm actually reading the wrong 
let me just go to verse 2. So basically, just to give you some context, is that the Israelites had come out of the desert. God miraculously had parted the Jordan. They had come up out of the Jordan, and this is where we find ourselves. So 5 verse 2, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at whatever name that is. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Basically because all the males who had died in the desert were those who had been circumcised. It was now time for those who had been born in the desert to be circumcised. And I just love that there is just no pause there. There's no pause. Joshua obeyed. He didn't wait for a more convenient time. No compromise. God's way, God's timing, period. It's done. And there was something that just niggled for me in that because I just I look at our culture and we are so informed. We're so informed. We've got so much wisdom at our fingertips. Google, people, so much wisdom, so much wisdom at our fingertips that it's almost as if we're unable to just do what we've been told to do because actually there's just so much information out there. Let's just first figure this out before we make a decision. And I just, when I looked at this and I thought to myself, actually compromise is doing what God says, but my way. So let's take this case in point, Joshua. Perhaps if I had been Joshua, every conversation is an invitation for a negotiation. And... Um, Perhaps I would have gone, you know, God, I hear you. Devote ourselves to you, renew covenant with you, I hear you. That is a really fabulous idea. So, not sure if you're aware, but by my calculations, to circumcise men right at the point of battle, that would be seven days on their backs, vulnerable, exposed. Don't know about that, but we could do it once we're on the other side. You know, once we've taken the land, there's milk, there's honey, we can give them milk, we can soothe them with honey. Let's do it then. Great idea. Awesome. Perfect. Great. Done. That is the nature of compromise. And what we don't recognize is that obedience in the moment is actually what opens the way for victory. We want to do things our way. It's our agenda. It's what we think is wise. And the issue is subscribing to the wisdom of the world and deducting, it's, it's by deduction, everything's a calculation. This plus this will equal this. Think about Abraham. Abraham, nobody knew more than Abraham the nature or the pain of obedience. And one of the, the theologians said, you know, when Abraham was asked to leave Ur, that was one thing. He was leaving behind his past. But when he was asked at Mount Moriah to and um, hang on, what is the actual, it's just so, sorry, let me just read it because it's a beautiful, when God come on Abraham to lay his son on the altar, oh, sorry, but when he was summoned to Mount Moriah to deliver his own son to God, he was asked to surrender his future as well. So we can see in Abraham's obedience, if we're doing the sums, we're going, okay, you've promised, you've promised me many descendants and I have one son. So you're asking me to take that if I did my sums and I use my wisdom, but well, that's just not going to work. So that just can't be God. It just can't be God. You know, that's just not, this is the issue with subscribing to wisdom and taking every command of Jesus 
and putting it through my filtration system of wisdom and calculation. And the issue is that when we are trying to bring about our own destinies, we will always choose the way that mitigates risk and that preserves self, always. Always, if Jesus was on about his own destiny, which could have been power, exaltation, whatever, he would have avoided the cross. Why go to the cross when I can do it this way? And this is the point. When we're on about what he's on about, we will choose his way, his timing, what he's doing, no matter the pain in the process. But when it is our way, when it's our agenda, we will bypass the process. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 25, it states, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The point is that our commitment to Jesus will never mature until we step out in obedience. That is part of the process. A.W. Tozer says, to expose our hearts to truth and consistently refuse or neglect to obey the impulses it arouses is to hinder the motions of life within us and if persisted in, to grieve the Holy Spirit to silence. Is everybody okay? You're all very quiet. Okay, well, let's move on from there then. Let's move on to dependency. Dependency. This is us denying self-sufficiency. So the point is, if we are going to be obedient, we are going to have to be dependent because it is very rare that God asks us to do anything that we can do in our own power. In fact, when we're obedient to Christ, the only way that we can accomplish what he's asked us to is in his strength. In Matthew 5, verse 3, this is now Jesus' first Sermon on the Mount. These are the Beatitudes. This is basically his manifesto for kingdom living. I don't know if you want to turn there. Has anyone got their Bible? Let's just quickly turn to Matthew 5. So the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are eight of these. I'll fly through them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. They will receive mercy, yeah. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And... Um, What's amazing about this is that this is our first beatitude, is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And when we're speaking about poor in spirit here, it's those who recognize their inadequacy, those who know that they are actually unable, without God's help, to do anything of value or significance. I'm not speaking about you not lacking value or not having significance. I mean, we, we have value. Jesus died for us. So it's not about that. But it is that recognition of actually, I have got nothing. I've got nothing to offer. And so that beatitude is first. 
interesting me. And that's because it informs all of the other Beatitudes. Because we cannot do any of those things if we think we are something. Really, when we know we are nothing, we are completely dependent on God's empowering to fulfill any of the following Beatitudes. And um, the fact is that our first point of contact with God is not what we have. It's what we don't have. That's our point of connection with him. It's what I don't have. I just love this. This was Spurgeon. He says, our sufficiency is of God. Let us practically enjoy this truth. We are poor, leaking vessels. And the only way for us to keep full is to put our pitcher under the perpetual flow of boundless grace. Then, despite its leakage, the cup will always be full to the brim. Because God is not looking for a gifted people. He's not. He's not looking for an adequate people. God is looking for people who, in their brokenness, would be conduits of his strength. He is looking for a people who would go, I will boast in my weakness. Why? Because in the midst of my weakness, Jesus is made strong. And the fullness of that means the extension of his kingdom in this earth. Calvin says, for men have no taste of God's power until they are convinced of their need for it. And they immediately forget men have no taste of God's power until they are convinced of their need of it. And they immediately forget its value unless they are continually reminded by awareness of their own weakness. The issue is that we are immersed in a culture. And the culture that we're immersed in, actually, self-sufficiency is a goal. It's not a sin. No, we're in the, we, this is the day and age of just do it. Just do it. You can do it. We spend billions of dollars buying biographies. We've got to read about how they did it, how they did it, because we are so, so consumed with man and, and man's ability to take himself places. And the issue with this is that has got absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel, it's upside down. It's upside down. Actually, the greatest thing we can do is admit that we can do nothing. The issue is with, and I've really looked at this at length. I can't speak to you about where, how this is all pulled together. But basically, self-sufficiency, the fruit of self-sufficiency will be two things. It will either be pride because this is what I did, which also breeds self-righteousness because I did it, so just get your stuff together. Or it breeds fear, because I can't do it. And when I fear, I control. I have to control, because somehow I've got to get to that point, and this is not working. And so we will start to employ things that God has actually designed for connection with him, for our control. For instance, prayer. That's a means of our connection. But when we are using prayer to control something, and our prayers are not answered, we become disappointed with God. When I'm using fasting, I mean, I starved myself for seven days, and there's still no breakthrough. Well, why? Because fasting is actually the means of aligning ourselves with Jesus, not getting him to align with us. I mean, I know there have been times I've fasted a long time, and I've been super miffed. Because I don't like being hungry. And nobody around me likes me being hungry. And still nothing happened. Again, that is a means for connection that I've employed for control. And so I'm disappointed. 
the fact is God is so good. We can depend on him. Thank God his ways are not our ways. Thank God his plans for my life are not my plans. Jenny Wiggly sitting here. Beautiful Jen who was like a mother to me for years. I'm sure you are so grateful that my plans didn't come to fruition, Jen Jen. I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure. He is just so jolly good. The issue with this thing of self-righteousness, I just want to say, is that one of our major calls, our call, is to live. When we cannot recognize how poor we are in spirit, and actually that everything we have, every ability, every material thing, whatever we have, is because of the grace of God, we will live in judgment. And God has called us to bear with one another's weaknesses, not to judge one another's weaknesses. We are in process, people. And as Job's friends judged Job, they were just trying to come up with a reason for why this guy was so miserable and useless. Get it together. Are you sinning? Are you stupid? Whatever it is, figure it out. In the meantime, they missed the fact that Job was in process. He was in the process of having God revealed to him like never before. He said, I knew of you, but now my eyes have seen you. His process meant that he saw Jesus. So if it was terrible, praise God. So let us not judge what God is doing in other people's lives because we forget that actually we don't have it all together. We do not. In fact, let's just not judge. Let's not judge at all. Let us love. Oh, we have been so loved. We do not have a father who's sitting, looking down, judging. Oh, my goodness. He undoes us with his love. He covers over with his love. He is loving. He is kind. And we get to follow him in that. And if you don't have your own love to give, oh, my goodness. There's a lot of love flowing from that throne. And you can be a conduit of it at any point. The only thing that will stop that flow is your inability to see things the way he sees them. The fact of the matter is Jesus placed himself, himself with the weak. He didn't actually just place himself amongst the weak. He chose the weak to bear his name. Not the educated. Definitely not the self-sufficient. And definitely not those who knew scripture back and forth but missed him. No. He chose the weak things of the world. The weak things. Because when we are weak, oh, the magnificence of his power is magnified. And that is the story that I want my life to tell. I want nothing to offer, but he does. And so we're on mission, and we're going to do it because he is powerful, he's loving, he's strong, he's committed to us. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. When I think about the... Where my eyes big, Baz, where my eyes big. I'm trying real hard to keep these eyes small. <laughs> And I just love, when I think about our journey as Christians, I don't know if you know the curious case of Benjamin Button, but I just love that because he's born as an old man. And the more he grows, the greater dependence we see in him. And isn't that the journey of the Christian? Oh my goodness. I don't get to graduate from dependence on God. Oh, maturity is greater dependency. So the more dependent you are on God, just Give yourself a pat on the back because you're maturing. This is such a great reality. Oh, it is just not about us. I just thank God because I want you to know I'm broken. And I just, I am so glad he's not depending on me. 
I am so glad. Woo, and so is my husband. <laughs> and lastly is devotion. Devotion. Devotion implies a deep personal attachment and a willingness to make sacrifices for the object of one's devotion. Devotion implies a deep personal attachment and a willingness to make sacrifices for the object of one's devotion. Oh. It's our single-minded pursuit of him. When we look at Jesus and Joshua. Doesn't need to say that. Their lives speak it. They were willing to make sacrifices, no matter the cost, because of their devotion to him. Psalm 86 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. The beauty of the cross was his devotion to us when he gave us everything and we had nothing to give. That was the nature of his devotion and he knew that many would reject him. They would still spit in his face. They would still belittle him and he just gave it all. He just held nothing back. That's devotion. And we get to be devoted to the one who will never fail us. He has never and will never fail us. Oh, beautiful. Clark's commentary says, Unite my heart. Join all the purposes, resolutions, and affections of my heart together to fear and to glorify your name. This indeed is the most important prayer. A divided heart is a great curse. Scattered affections are a miserable plague. When the heart is not at unity with itself, the work of religion cannot go on. Indecision of the mind and division of affections mar any work. The heart must be one, that the work may be one. If this be wanting, all is wrong. This is a prayer which becomes the mouth of every Christian. See, the man of two souls, the one who has, earth, has one for earth, the one who has one for heaven, I mean one soul for earth, sorry, one for heaven, who wishes to secure both worlds, will just never experience the fullness of Christ as he has it for us. We cannot hold on to heaven and earth. I did a study on attachments because there's an attachment theory related to orphanness. But I just want to read this. It says, regardless of how compulsion appears externally, underneath it is always robbing us of our freedom, which is that which Christ died for. We act not because we have chosen to, but because we feel we have to. We cling to things, to people and beliefs, not because we love them, but because we are terrified of losing them and what that would mean for us. The classic spiritual term for this compulsive condition is attachment. Each of us has countless attachments. We are attached to our environments, our status, our relationships, and of course our possessions. We're also attached to our religious beliefs and to images of ourselves, others, and God. In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments and addictions become our idols. We give them our time, our energy, and our attention. We claim we are free, but in the face of our attachments, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. The fact is that these attachments appease our fears. They appear, appease our fears of lack, 
our fears of insignificance, our fears of being alone, all they do is appease our fears, but they do not fulfill us because the only one who fills everything in every way is Jesus Christ. In John 15 verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And I think about this as Wi-Fi connection because with a van, if you need to be grafted in, you've got to be grafted in. You're not half grafted here, half grafted there. If you're going to bear fruit and if life is going to flow from the main van through to the branches, well, that sap's got to flow. And so you've got to be attached. And when we are attached to other things, we just simply cannot attach to Jesus. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not apart from me, you might get a D and an A. Apart from me, you'll, yeah, it'll be good, but not so good. No, actually, apart from me, you can do nothing of eternal significance. Nothing. Nothing. And so we have to detach from the things that have captured our hearts in order to properly attach to this great, beautiful king. The fact is that we don't incorporate him into our lives. He overtakes our lives. When the Lord says, abide in me, he is talking about our wills, about our choices, and the decisions that we make. We must decide to do this, the things which expose ourselves to him and keep us in contact with him. This is what it means to abide. In Romans, Paul really warns us against worshiping, attaching, or putting our confidence in created things rather than the creator. Because at the end of the day, what we worship and what we give our affection to forms us. It forms our values. It, form, it forms everything about us. And so when, we, when our devotion is toward God, we're aligning ourselves with his nature, his character, his will. And so Sid was, I don't know if Sid's gone, but he was praying this week, and what we behold, we become. And the question is, what are we beholding? What holds our devotion? So in closing, I just want to take us back to the story of Joshua, Joshua 5.13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? So he says, no. <laughs> I love that he answers no. He doesn't <laughs> it's no. It's like my little Catherine. When I would ask her things when she was little, she would start everything with no and then give the actual answer. I love it. He says, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off. For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. We see in this text that God is pulling rank on Joshua. Because Joshua did everything right to this point. Obedience, dependence, devotion. But Joshua missed one thing. He may have been, may have been a great military leader, but he was not commander-in-chief, and this was not his mission. And as he fell on his face and worshipped in recognition that this was not, are you on my mission? It was, in fact, was he on God's mission? And as he recognized that, that ground became holy ground.
And this morning, I believe there's a moment for the ground that we're standing on to become holy ground as we recognize whose mission we're on, as we choose whose mission we will be on. That, that charge to, to Joshua was the same charge to us today. As we are walking out of our deserts and as, we are, as Jan was speaking about God recommissioning the commissioned, God says, be strong and courageous. But that's not him going, be strong and courageous. Okay, go. That is, no. Take courage because I am strong. Take courage because I am strong. Come, abide, devote, depend, come. Let's go. And he takes us in his power because his power is made perfect in our weakness, in our admission that we cannot do this. And I just want to say to those of you today who surrender makes you feel anxious, God doesn't ask you to do it on your own. Philippians 2 verse 17 says that it is God who will work in us. He is the one who works in us. The exact scripture is it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So really the invitation this morning is just to accept his invitation and to respond to him. There, there may be some who go, actually, I, I don't think I'm willing for what this might mean if I surrender. I don't know if I'm really willing for, that, for what I might have to give up, my dreams, my agenda. I don't know if I'm willing. Well, there's a simple prayer that you can pray. God, I am willing that you would make me willing. And if that is your starting point, that's totally fine. I just want to end by reading Song of Songs 8. We've been speaking about the fire coming. I spoke about the wet wood. But Song of Songs 8 in the Passion Translation. We just close your eyes and let this just wash over you. Who is this one? She arises out of her desert, clinging to her beloved. I awakened your innermost being as you longed for more of me. Fasten me upon your heart as a seal of fire forevermore. This living, consuming flame will seal you as my prisoner of love. For my passion is stronger than the chains of death in the grave. All-consuming as the very flashes of fire from the burning heart of God. Place this fierce, unrelenting fire over your entire being. For rivers of pain, loss, and sacrifice will never extinguish this flame. Endless floods will be unable to quench this raging fire that burns within you. Everything will be consumed. It will stop at nothing as you yield everything to this furious fire until it won't even seem to you like a sacrifice anymore. And so it is God who will minister to you now. You don't need to wait for us. We just want to create room for you to allow the ground that you're standing on to become holy ground.